Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras, including extra episodes and merchandise. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode, so I'd love to give a great big shout out to Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Max, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons of Her Head and Films. If financial support is not an option, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing Her Head and Films on iTunes. You could tell your friends and followers about the podcast, or you can send me an encouraging message or just engage with me in a positive way on social media. I love your comments and your messages. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Head and Films, and you can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. Today's episode is very special. For the first time, I've interviewed a filmmaker. His name is Leon Lee, and in this episode, we discuss his most recent documentary called Letter from Masanja. Before we get to the interview, I want to give you some background information about this documentary. I think it's very important. I do hope that this episode inspires you to watch the film. It's available to rent, but if you haven't seen it yet, I want to give you a breakdown of what it's about. In 2012, an unbelievable story appeared in the newspaper, The Oregonian, and it quickly went viral. A woman in Oregon named Julie Keith had opened a box of Halloween decorations from Kmart, and she discovered an SOS letter, really, written by a man in a Chinese prison labor camp. The letter was written in both Chinese and English, and it implored whoever found the letter to publicize it. So Julie Keith contacted various human rights organizations, but nothing much happened. So she ended up going to the Oregonian, and they wrote a story about it. Once the story came out, then the person who wrote it, we eventually found out who wrote this letter. At the time that the story was published, nobody knew who it was. So it turns out that the letter was written by a man named Soon Yi, who was imprisoned and tortured at the Masan labor camp because he practiced Falun Gong. It's a spiritual practice that is heavily persecuted in China. He refused to give up Falun Gong, and he was imprisoned in the camp for two and a half years, where he endured terrible torture and he was forced to make those Halloween decorations. During those two and a half years, that's when he wrote 20 letters, and he put them in 20 different boxes of these Halloween decorations. The publication of his letter and the international attention it received eventually led to the abolishment of these labor camps and freed tens of thousands of people. So this one letter that Julie Keith found had a huge impact, and it helped other people. After Sunyi left prison, he continued to do Falun Gong, and he was an activist, which made him a target of the authorities in China. 
He eventually fled China and sought asylum in Indonesia, where he died under very mysterious circumstances. Before he passed away, he was able to meet Julie Keith and to thank her for her persistence in publicizing his letter. So, Leon Lee's documentary, Letter from Masanja, goes into all the facets of Soon Yi's story, and much of the footage was shot by Soon Yi himself inside China. Leon Lee has made many documentaries exposing human rights abuses in China, and as a result, he's not able to enter the country. His work has won multiple awards, including a Peabody, and I have to say it was a true honor to speak with him about Soon Yi's story and the larger issues that it raises, like the persecution of minorities, the source of cheap goods that many of us in the West buy, and really the power of small actions. Soon Yi wrote 20 letters and hid them in those Halloween decorations, and he had no idea if anyone would find the letters, but somebody did, and it made a big impact and it helped other people. So in the end, he was able to expose what was happening in these labor camps and to free other people in the process. So I loved this film. I care about Sunyi's story. It's a privilege to talk about the film and to talk about Sunyi on this podcast. And it was a privilege to speak to Leon Lee. So without further delay, here is my full conversation with Leon Lee. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. When I first saw the trailer for this film, it was like a few months ago, it just, it, it immediately sort of became my most anticipated film. I was really taken by it and I rented it really as soon as it was available. It just sort of recently became available and I was just so moved by it and I just find that it like still haunts me, the story. Like I keep thinking about Sun Yi and how he went through so much going to prison for two and a half years, the torture, not being able to be with his wife, the way he had to flee China and then of course his mysterious death in Indonesia. So I just really wanted to thank you for making the film and bringing Sun Yi's really important story I think to like a larger audience and I I just don't think that he should be forgotten and before I ask you specifically about letter from Masanja I wanted to ask you something a little bit more personal I was looking through your filmography and I've seen that you've made many films about social injustice particularly in China and I was really um, wondering like what inspired you to take that path and to dedicate your life to sort of making these films in um, 2006, uh, when I first immigrated from China to Canada, I read about the allegation of forest organ harvesting in China. And uh, my uh, initial belief was one of complete disbelief. Uh, the allegation said that the Chinese government uh, was harvesting heart, liver, kidney, cornea, skin from uh, prisoners of conscience. Uh, namely Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghurs, Tibetans, house church members, and political dissidents, and, and sell them to you know, transplant tourists and wealthy domestic uh, patients. So that was something I just couldn't believe. But then I, I kept thinking, what if it's true? So I started looking into it, 
and、uh, there were two Canadians who were the pioneers in this investigation: David Maitis and David Kilgore. So I got in touch with them. I followed their investigation, and、uh, shortly after, I realized this is probably happening. So I wanted to make a film so that the viewers can become investigators themselves, looking at the evidence and draw their own conclusion.、Uh, otherwise, they they might have the same reaction as I did. So that was that was the initial、uh, idea, but、uh, it took eight years to actually complete that film uh, called uh, Human Harvest. It turned out that、uh, the number of victims were in the hundreds of thousands, and、uh, the crime is still going on today. During this process, I got in touch with so many people from China who shared their stories with me. Stories I had never、uh, known before.、Uh, so I was inspired by those stories. And、uh, that's why I kept making films about、uh, human rights issues in China. Yeah, I mean, I think your work is really important, and I know that Human Harvest is streaming on Amazon Prime right now, and so that's good. And hopefully, more people will see that. So now I want to talk about a letter from Masanja. This is really such a unique and extraordinary story, and I know that there was. An article written on the Oregonian when it first happened, when Julie Keith found this letter and her Halloween decorations, and the story sort of went viral in in 2012, and and people got really invested in who had written this letter, and so I am wondering how you yourself came across the story of Sunyi, and if there was anything specifically that inspired you to connect with him and to make the film, because you could have easily just read. The The story, and then just went on about your life. But you decided to really bring his story to、uh, to the masses and to create this documentary. So I'd love to know the genesis of that. I also read the story online, and、uh, at that time, I had been making、uh, films about China and focusing on Chinese issue for a while. So、uh, in in news story, they mentioned the letter came from Masanjia labor camp, and I had actually interviewed. Several survivors from Masanjia labor camp before, so I knew that was one of the most notorious labor camps in China. I knew to survive Masanjia alone would have been <laughs> a miracle,、uh, let alone、uh, writing letters. You know, I knew there had to be an amazing story behind it, and I wanted. I, I immediately、uh, contacted Julie Keith. She was so helpful. I, I think I interviewed her several times over the years. Then、uh, the real challenge was to、uh, track down the letter writer Sun Yi. But of course, at that time, we didn't even know who this person was. Because of、uh, Human Harvest, I had developed this underground network in China. They are dissidents, journalists, and I, I put the word out.、Um, three years later, one day somebody told me, "I think、uh, we found your guy." Then we scheduled a Skype call. Part of it、uh, you see in the film. It turned out Sun Yi had also seen my previous work. He he trusted me、uh, because it is a big decision for him. He had been hiding for so long, and he he knew what it、uh, it, it meant to to come forward to do this work. And then he figured this is probably a great opportunity to tell his full story、uh, to make sure that people understand what、uh, what what was going on. I was. Very concerned about his safety, but he said something、uh, like, "Look, 
helping you to make the film is no more dangerous than what I'm already doing, uh, providing technical support to the underground press or printing all these brochures by myself. So if I'm taking the same risk, I might as well do something more impactful. So that's how we decided to uh, to do this film together. But we have only one problem. Because of my uh, previous work, I wasn't able to go back to China safely, and uh, Sun Yi did not know how to use a camera. So we had to work together mainly over Skype. I developed a little online uh, filmmaking course for, for him. Uh, I provided a list of gears that he needed to acquire and uh, gave him multiple training sessions. And that's where we uh, we started. Yeah, I mean, this film sounds like a really long journey. There was a lot involved in it. And you get that sense when you're watching the film. And I'm sort of glad that you mentioned that about Soon Yi talking about the dangers that he was putting himself in because I myself was wondering if he had ever, you know, shared reservations or anything like that. I mean, I come from this film like as a Western viewer. And it's I think it's hard for people, especially in America, to understand what soon you went through and to and to really comprehend that kind of persecution and oppression not that you know bad things don't happen here of course they do there there's certainly oppression here in the united states but you know prison labor camps and torture and the underground network and i mean throughout the entire film i was incredibly in awe of soon Yi and his bravery and how he put his life on the line really first um, when he wrote the letter itself he wrote those 20 letters that he put in those different boxes he that was really like um, a leap of faith you know he had no idea if anybody would read them and then he's also putting his life on the line to make the film so he just I was just in awe of him the entire film like I felt really connected to him he he just had this I don't know he had something special about him that came through in the film where you just deeply cared about this man and you felt really invested in his story I mean maybe can you talk a little bit more about him or your relationship with him or your bond maybe it's it's truly remarkable like you said uh, what he uh, was able to accomplish uh, having interviewed survivors from Masinja myself even when i was listening to their uh, recollection of what happened inside I, I i cannot imagine what kind of courage it takes for sun yi to decide to hide the letters uh, he was aware that there would be random inspections and if ever somebody discovered the letter uh, the consequences would be unimaginable. What he said during, I think one day we were talking about some logistic issues, and it became quite uh, clear to me um, that every conversation I had with him, every interaction might be the last one, because the realities for people like Sun Yi in China is uh, every day when they left uh, their apartment, going somewhere, they did not know if they would return at night. All it takes is for uh, a cop to uh, stop you uh, at, at some you know, inspection point, whether it's the train station, bus station, or it's just on the street. Uh, they will check your ID, they compare, and they realize you are a Falun Gong practitioner or um, a political dissident. Uh, they're all on the list, and they can arrest you right away. And for people like Sun Yi, uh, who refuse to recant their beliefs, uh, then, you know, anything could happen from there. So 
that's that's the reality uh, he he was facing, which made everything he sent he sent to me that much more precious. So I was constantly worrying about him, but he was the kind of person who always uh, was so positive and encouraging. He he was always telling me whenever we had the difficulties, it's okay, things gonna things are going to work out. Let's just you know uh, talk it through step by step how how we move forward. And he was the kind of person who is always thinking about others. Because I, I did uh, have the chance to meet him in person uh, in the end, and we spent some time together. Uh, even at the time, he was uh, he was not in good uh, situation, right? He he had no money and he was uh, struggling to make a living. But he was constantly asking whether uh, the crew had eaten whether we're okay with the weather and everything. So from the little things, um, I, I just felt this man has, has no sense of, of uh, himself. He's always thinking about other people. Um, and that's, he is uh, the most courageous and inspiring person I've encountered in my life. So I, I felt such an honor to be able to tell his story and now to, to feel, I also feel the burden the responsibility to make sure that his story is is known worldwide. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not surprised those stories that you share because he just radiates this warmth and kindness. And even though he had been through horrific things and he was still going through so much, like you said, no money. And and he went to live in Indonesia and he, he knew his life was in danger really at any moment and yet in the interviews and when you know he's talking on the film he just comes off incredibly calm and and I really think this story is also about a person really holding on to their beliefs I mean he could have easily I guess recanted and said you know I'm going to give up my spiritual practice of Falun Gong and instead he did not do that I mean, this is really a story about someone holding on to their beliefs and standing up for what they believe in, obviously, and then using his own abilities. You know, he knew a little bit of English, and that's how he could write those letters, really using what he had, his resources, to try and help others and try to expose this injustice through the letters and then through the film. And he was imprisoned because of his involvement with Falun Gong. And from what I've read, it's heavily persecuted in China. And I just wonder if you could say a bit more about them and why they are so persecuted in China. Falun Gong was an ancient uh, spiritual discipline in China it was only made available uh, to the public in 1992. It has three core principles, uh, namely truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. For me, uh, it, it's, it's like Tai Chi or yoga with a more spiritual element to it. So there is no membership, uh, there is no fee to pay, no organizations to join. You just come to the park, practice uh, whenever you want, or practice at home. It was, it was quite... Uh, uh, popular after uh, its introduction by 1999, according to the Chinese government's statistics, there were over 70 million to 100 million people in China practicing Falun Gong. And the government was quite supportive. Then Premier Zhu Rongji once said, um, you know, something like, because of the health benefits of the practice, the, the government uh, is saving uh, 
a lot of money on health care, so he was quite happy. Then President Jiang Zemin grew jealous of the popularity of Falun Gong. That was one reason why he launched the crackdown uh, in 1999. Now looking back, people realized that there were two other reasons. One is that uh, the membership of Falun Gong outnumbered the Communist Party's membership, which at the time was around 60 million. So although Falun Gong had no political agenda whatsoever, the party believed it could be a threat. And secondly, the very uh, principles of Falun Gong, truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance, is not something the Communist Party can tolerate uh, because the party functions uh, based on propaganda and violence. This is also made clear in the film. If a large population uh, in China actually believe in truth, compassion, and tolerance, believing in telling people the truth, like what Sun Yi did, it, it, it might be a great threat to uh, the communist ideology. So uh, they launched the crackdown in 1999. The president, Jiang, Jiang Zemin, said he wanted to eradicate Falun Gong within three months uh, at, all, at all costs. So you see mass arrests nationwide, people kicking out of school, kicking out of their workplace, they're tortured, they're killed. But uh, up to this date, Falun Gong was still there, is spread now uh, to over, I don't know, over 100 countries worldwide. Uh, and the only place it's banned is, is China, where it was founded. And uh, the persecution continues to this day. So that would be a, in a, an overview. Thank you for uh, just, you know, educating uh, listeners who may not be as familiar with it. Because it's, it's an important part of Sunyi's story. And he's imprisoned because he practices Falun Gong. And then because he will not give it up or recant it, he's put through really this horrific and extreme torture that you go into detail about in the documentary. And when he describes that torture, it's very intense. I did like that instead of doing reenactments, you actually use Sunyi's drawings. I think it's a reminder to us that there are certain things that are really not representable. Like, I don't even know how you would have gone about reenacting that level of torture on a human body. And so I think the drawings were actually a good thing that you used, and he drew very well. And I just wonder if you could talk more about those drawings, why you used them, and how you think they sort of work in the film. Yes, um, I was really thinking about how on earth we could reenact all these scenes in Masenja labor camp. We knew we couldn't go back to film, and and we knew any sort of live action reenactment uh, might not work well, as as you mentioned. And uh, it's an interesting story. One day in a Skype conversation, I think Sun Yi just told me that he had kept a sketchbook. Well, I had no expectation. I say, okay, a sketchbook, until he showed me his drawings. They were extraordinary. And I, I asked him, so you can do this? He said, yes. I said, how? It turned out that he had been an avid reader of traditional Chinese graph- graphic novels since he was a little boy. So he often practiced drawing the figures on the book margin. And later he became an engineer, so he learned, he learned uh, drafting and all these techniques. Uh, and after he um, was released from Masanjia, every part of his, him wanted to forget. But he knew he had to remember. So he uh, 
drew all these uh, you know sketches hoping that one day they, they, they would be useful. Um, right there, we decided to use animation uh, based on Sun Yi's own sketches to reenact um, his experience in the labor camp. So I, I, I think it worked out quite well because in the live action part, it was Sun Yi taking us to uh, right beside him to his daily uh, lives. And uh, in the animation part, it was also based on Sun Yi's own work. So hopefully the viewers will really feel the authenticity. I, I definitely did. And you show him at times drawing. And um, it reminded me of, I don't know if you're aware of this, but after the Holocaust, there were some people who survived it. Um, they created art and drawings of some of the stuff that they went through, like in the labor camps or the concentration camps. And I have an interest in the Holocaust. And so I remember there was like an art exhibition a while back at some museum where they actually showed some of these paintings, but also drawings. And so it reminded me a bit of that. And when you tell that story about him saying that he wanted to forget, but he knew that he had to remember, it's it's also I think it adds another layer to the drawings where it's almost like him trying to capture his memories, but maybe also maybe work through the trauma a little bit of what he had been through, through the drawing, because sometimes art can be a therapeutic thing for people. Those those drawings work really well in the film, and um, I think you used them in a really powerful way. And it's very personal, too, because it's like these are his memories and his creations. So I thought it was like a unique aspect of the film that really fascinated me. Yeah, I think it definitely added another layer to the film. The film actually only showed a small part of what Sweeney went through. Sweeney went through a, a lot more torture, uh, but we we felt this is probably enough. We we actually had to dial back to make it believable. But even what's in the film, people already felt this is too much. Yeah, it was it was very intense to hear his story, and it's just like how do you how do you even comprehend it? Like how do you go there and then to know that somebody suffered that he suffered that, and yet he was able to. I mean, he was only he was there only two and a half years. I mean, it doesn't seem like a long time, but for him and the extreme nature of the torture, I'm sure it felt like he was there forever. It's a wonder he survived that at all and that he was able to keep going and to keep living. And I mean, he's just, he was such an extraordinary person. And like you said before, you feel this responsibility in making the film. And I think as a viewer, you feel a responsibility to share his story, to make sure people know about him and that they don't forget this really amazing man. Right. Uh, just like uh, Julie Keith, um, Sun Yi wrote 20 letters, and uh, Julie's letter was the only one that was publicized, which begs the question, what happened to the other 19 letters? And, and, and Julie had contacted human rights organizations uh, per the request of the writer, so she had done everything she, she could at that point. She could have just, you know, say, okay, that's it. But she didn't. She kept going until this is well-publicized, uh, which is also, I think, a big lesson for all of us. If we want change, uh, instead of only talking about it, take take action, whether it's big or small. Only 
actions can lead to change. I also really appreciate uh, when you said people, the viewers have a responsibility. In my mind, I think many of the viewers haven't received a letter from Sun Yi or you know anything like that. But uh, the film is now Sun Yi's letter, and all the viewers who have seen the film have received an SOS message. Do we follow what uh, uh, Julie Keith did and do something about it, or do we do what the other 19 recipient might have done? I think also that's a question for, for every viewer. Yeah, Julie Keith definitely impressed me too because she actually reached out to like human rights organizations and did not get a response. I mean, you would think that those are the places to go and it really took a newspaper story. I mean, this is sort of tangential, but you know, newspapers are struggling, especially here in the U.S. the last few years. And, you know, the free press is under attack by our current president, President Trump. And this story for me was also sort of an example of, hey, look what newspapers can do. You know, newspapers, they're speaking truth to power, just like the way your film is really speaking truth to power and the way Soon Yi was too. And, um, and that makes them dangerous to would-be despots and tyrants. And so it was, it was fascinating to me that the channels that she went that you thought would do more really didn't. And it took more of the newspaper and, and that story getting out and people hearing about it. I am curious, like, are, are there a set of actions that you do want people to take after they see the documentary? Or um, do you have specific things in mind for people to do? Yes. Well, there are depending on what kind of you know, position viewers have and what they can do to help. But in general, I think we're having uh, two campaigns uh, on our website, letterformasenjia.com. If you click the Take Action tab on top, it'll take you to uh, the, the campaigns we have. If you are in the U.S., currently there is a resolution in the Senate, Senate Resolution 220. It's a bipartisan resolution uh, expressing solidarity for Falun Gong practitioners in China and uh, urging the Chinese regime to uh, stop the persecution. Uh, and if you're in Canada, we also have a campaign where we take advantage of the power of a letter uh, so the viewers can write a letter to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, to help free a Canadian Falun Gong practitioner currently illegally detained in China and tortured uh, for her beliefs. Her name is Sun Qian. She's not related to Sun Yi, but she is detained for the same reason as uh, as him. I will definitely uh, put that information in the show notes of my episode and let people know that they can go to the website and do that. I saw that myself when I went to the website, and I, I love that y'all have included that. On the website, you have a lot about Sun Yi's story, and then you have what steps people can take. After Sunni's letter gained attention, the prison labor system apparently was abolished in China. I was wondering if you know what the status of that is now, or do you know if it still exists, or if it's kind of taken on another form? Officially, the labor, uh, the re-education through labor camp system, uh, which was in place for decades, was abolished, and over uh, 300 camps were closed. Uh, about 160,000 detainees were freed at the time. So that, that, was, that, that was victory, but, but a partial victory, because the, the persecution uh, against all sorts of 
uh, dissidents in China continued. Some of the dissidents were put into, uh, uh, were formally charged and, and sentenced into prison. Some were um, put into uh, black jails or legal re-education centers. And uh, lately, as uh, many of us have seen on, on the different kinds of uh, reports, that in particular in Xinjiang, where the majority of the population are Muslims in China, uh, one million to two million or even more of them are being detained in uh, so-called re-education centers. People say what well, the government of China says it is a, a training center, so people can acquire new skills and come out and get better jobs. But uh, we know that's not the case. Because there's no media access, it's, it's difficult to know what exactly is going on inside. But uh, from Sun Yi's experience, it's not hard to, to imagine what's going on. I think something terrible is going on inside uh, to uh, psychological reprogramming, forced labor, torture, and, and all that. I would not be surprised. It seems like these these camps are, they've just taken on a different form, really, and maybe a different language is used to describe them, different euphemisms, it sounds like. A, a big part of this film for me that made me um, reflect on and think more about was the source of cheap goods here in the United States. I know it's not sort of the central point of the film, but it's something that I thought about because soon you made these Halloween decorations in the camp and they ended up at Kmart and it was very it was fascinating to see his reaction to those decorations that he didn't quite understand the tombstones and the bones and things and how I mean if you think about if you if you weren't western how frightening that those things would be and it probably was strange that we celebrate those things and it just made me think like how many products have I bought how many products have other people bought that may have been made in this way I wonder if you know if there are any ways for us to find out more about how products are being manufactured in China if you have any more information about that at all oh uh, that unfortunately that, that's very difficult uh, because it is illegal for US companies to source from products that's made by forced labor. Uh, so there are different layers of, of you know, supplier distributors uh, that's in, in the middle, which makes it uh, very difficult to trace back uh, the origin of the products. Even from the people I have um, talked with, there are just so many things that were made in, uh, in these for, in labor camps or prisons, uh, you know, ranging from chopsticks, to boxes, uh, to Halloween decorations, to toys, Clothing. Uh, I, 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 I'm actually in the uh, uh, final stage of, uh, of a stop motion uh, film called Ragdoll, which was based on a true story. And um, some underage girls are mostly orphans because their parents were uh, killed by the regime for various reasons. Mostly, they, are, they were also prisoners of conscience. And, they, uh, and these orphans were forced to make uh, toys. Uh, dolls in particular, and uh, it became a famous brand in Italy. So all, all sorts of uh, products are made in China. Uh, that that that's actually made in labor camps. But just 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 to be fair, not everything coming from China is made in the labor camps. That's part of the things that's so difficult for an average consumer here, and and it's hard to know whether they are buying uh, unethical products or not. I would say uh, there are different organizations working on this, but I haven't seen a real uh, good solution at this point. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely complex, but I think that's sort of part of the power of the film because I think it could be easy for some viewers to distance themselves to say, "Oh, well that just happened over in China. What does that do? What does that have to do with me?" But a compelling part of this story is like our complicity in this whole system that we buy, we may have bought products that were made at these labor camps. So we are part of it. We do play a role in it. We can't distance ourselves from it. Ironically, though, I mean, it just occurred to me as we were talking, like, I mean, it's terrible he had to make those decorations. But in a way, the decorations were a link to the outside world that without the decorations, the letter may not have gotten out right it it was almost like a channel to the west that's what he was hoping for you know that somebody would find this letter and do something like julie did and thankfully she did and she was persistent and really brave i really hated when she got all that criticism online when people were like oh you shouldn't have done that you know but of course he was specifically asking her to do that he was asking her to sort of be his voice and to publicize the letter but without the decorations it never would have happened i mean as terrible as it is that he had to do that labor right that's that's certainly the silver lining here uh, if, if if people uh, and, and it also really demonstrates what a small action uh, can lead you know uh, what kind of impact it, it can result in and and also uh, the power of awareness so if um, if more people understand what's going on in china i think we can we can see a much bigger change. Yeah, I mean, in this globalized world, we're much more interconnected than we realize. We're much more connected than we think we are. That here is this man in China, and he becomes sort of forever linked and connected to Julie Keith, a woman in Oregon in the United States. I mean, these two people's fates, their two lives, are forever inextricably bound together through this one letter, through this one act of courage on his part to write it, and then, of course, her act of courage to find a way to publicize it and to get more people to read it. I do wonder if there's if there's something in particular or a larger message that you would like Western audiences, maybe in particular, to take away from this film. I want people to feel that they are a lot more powerful than than, than they think they are, especially people in, in North America, in, in, the, in the West in, in general. If, if we look at changes, uh, let's say in China itself, uh, most of the big changes are a result of some sort of pressure internationally. So if by publicizing one letter it can lead to the closure of a decades-old labor camp system, uh, imagine what we can achieve if more people stand up and tell our governments in Canada, in the U.S., in, in Europe, that we care about human rights situations uh, in, in China, and uh, we can see much, much bigger uh, changes. Um, and uh, on, on the, the other thing, I think really, uh, whatever cause that you have in mind, whether it's human rights in China or issues domestically here, uh, this is also an inspiring tale in the sense that if Sun Yi and Julie can do that, under those terrible circumstances. I think here we can do a lot more to change whatever we think needs to be changed. I love that point because it did make me think more about what's happening in my own country and, you know, other countries around the world and how these times, they're dark and they're difficult, but they also require a certain level, I guess, of bravery and courage. 
And I think when you see a story like this, it can give you hope. It can, I mean, I wouldn't say this is like the most feel-good story because very tragic things happen to Sunya. You know, he's no longer with us and there's a lot of mystery and, you know, stuff surrounding that. And it was heartbreaking to me personally because I felt very invested in his story and his life. But look what he was able to do with the time that he did have. That he did some very extraordinary things. And he did have a level of bravery. And he was living under conditions that I think a lot of us just can't even comprehend. So like you said, look what him and Julie did. What could we do in our own countries, in our own circumstances, and maybe be a little bit more outspoken, be a little bit braver, and really try to do what we can to change things. It doesn't happen overnight, but that was something that definitely stayed with me about the film too, and why I think it's just had such a profound effect on me. You know, Sunyi's story really makes me think about all the stories we don't know about. All the people who's suffering really won't be made into a film, but I'm wondering what stories you would still like to tell, and if you have anything that you're working on besides Ragdoll, if you have things in the works. Uh, I'm working on uh, different projects uh, now. Uh, another uh, feature film I'm uh, working on is also based on true story. Uh, there were a group of young students from uh, Tsinghua University, which is the Chinese equivalent to the MIT, and they risked their lives to connect foreign reporters to uh, victims of the persecution in China because the reporters were under heavy surveillance, the victims were under surveillance. It was quite a difficult task to pull this off. And they did this in, in a period of two years. And uh, uh, the reporter, one of the reporters actually won a Pulitzer Prize as a result. But uh, these young students, uh, three of them were sentenced to more than 10 years and they were finally rele uh, released. Uh, they recently came to the US and I got the chance to know them and their story. So I, I'm hoping to do a film on, on that. Mostly people asking me, why are you only do, doing films in this area? Well, because uh, no other people are doing it. There seems to be something that, uh, understandably, why Hollywood is not uh, really paying attention. And, and many other people are not doing it either. So if I have the privilege, if I have the trust of these people who share their stories with me, I just felt the responsibility to keep telling their stories and hopefully um, we'll see some changes. And I know it's come at personal cost to yourself because you're not able to actually go to China and you do live in Canada now. So, I mean, I know that you've put a lot on the line as well to make your films and I'm really glad to hear that you have other things in the works. Before I let you go, I was wondering if you had any updates maybe about Sunyi's wife. I know he had a lot of issues, you know, they were not able to be together the way they would have liked. And I remember in the film, his lawyer, Sunyi's lawyer, was also imprisoned. And I just wonder if you have any updates about them at all in their lives. Uh, I have no contact with Sunyi's family for, for their safety. Uh, so I'm not sure what happened to them at this point. As to Sunyi's lawyer, Jiang Tianyong, he was, uh, he was detained uh, by the police. Well, he, he actually went missing in November 2016, but only later we find out he was actually uh, captured by the police. And uh, a year later, in November 2017, he was found uh, guilty of, of incitement 
by um, the Changsha uh, court and was sentenced to two years in prison. Most likely his, his so-called confession uh, was obtained through torture. Uh, he's still serving his sentence, but uh, recent report suggests that he was forced to take unknown medication uh, and he suffered from you know great memory loss. This was a known tactic by the regime to uh, supposedly make sure that when people are released, uh, intellectuals like him would no longer be able to continue his work. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking all around the, the different tragedies in this story. But I, I definitely thank you for making the film and for just the work that you continue to do. And obviously, you believe in justice and truth and, and you want to raise awareness. And it's great that you've really dedicated your life to bring these stories to more people. And I'm glad that I could have some little part in letting other people know about Sunni's story and Julie Keith and, and this whole extraordinary story that you've brought to film. So I just want to thank you so much for talking to me. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.